We're going to continue in our walk through the Psalms of the 80s. Um, before that, let's, let's pray. It's good to see everyone here as well. Our Heavenly Father, we are indeed very thankful for the responsibility of training up our, our children in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for those, uh, for Ricky and for Su Jung, for those who help with MKids, with Pastor Eric uh, in the MGC Youth. We thank you for our parents, Father, who are diligent in praying with their children and, and helping them read the scripture. And so we pray that as we pursue you, as we pursue knowing you, knowing that you have graced us and blessed us with your living word, with a, a community of, of faith, brothers and sisters who are committed to seeing Christ's kingdom advance, we, we pray that uh, these children and youth would be not only enfolded into that community, this community, but also, Lord, grow and mature into uh, servants who will be used mightily for your kingdom. And uh, in this weekend of remembrance, Father, we are humbled um, by the, the stories that we continue to hear, the remembrances shared, uh, Father, the heroism um, on levels uh, that we can only imagine uh, being in those kinds of situations. Father, not only the, the heroes who went up into the towers while people were walking down uh, in, in fear, those, Lord God, on United 93, um, those at the Pentagon, Father, the, the, the folks on the planes. Uh, we, we, we are mindful um, because of events like this, not only of the brevity of life, but of the importance of knowing you in that, this brief life that we have. And so we thank you and we pray for the families still affected by 9-11, not only the, the grief and the loss, but the, uh, the illnesses that, that result as come a result of being exposed to all of the, the dust and ash from the towers. And so, Lord God, we, we are very uh, mindful um, that we are always dependent on you. We turn our attention now, Lord, with that in mind, to your word, which continually points you to, uh, as a source of life, points to you as a source of life, our source of hope, uh, the very sustenance, Father, that we need you provide for us. So bless now the, the hearing of your word, bless the preaching of it, we thank you that our sins are forgiven and with clean hearts and renewed minds now instruct us that we might learn, know, and apply all that we hear. Uh, this we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Psalm 84 uh, is um, a psalm of the sons of Korah. We'll learn more about that in just a moment. The psalm begins, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. 
Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now right away you notice a difference between Psalm 84 and the previous psalms that we have read in the 80s, psalms written by Asaph. Those psalms all were psalms of of lament in one form or another. And you could say in a sense that Psalm 84 is also a psalm of lament, but it's a different kind of lament. It's the lament, if you will, of a man who is homesick for the presence of God. This psalm is written for pilgrims to be sung and recited as they would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the the fall festival, most likely the the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, you know, those temporary shelters that are built to remind Israel of their wilderness wanderings as they journeyed from Egypt into the Promised Land. The vocabulary of the psalm reveals a, a passionate yearning to worship God, and a passionate desire to experience His presence in the temple. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis calls this yearning an appetite for God. And he writes, I call this yearning the appetite for God rather than the love of God, because the love of God too easily suggests the word spiritual in all those negative or restrictive senses which it has unhappily acquired. Now, he wrote this over 60 years ago. It's on the mark about spiritual. The appetite for God has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural, even a physical desire. So this is the, the, the passion, this is the desire, this is the yearning that is expressed in Psalm 84. Now, according to the superscription, Uh, in the psalm. It's written by uh, the sons of Korah. Much of what we know, probably all that we know about the sons of Korah, we gain from the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In 1st Chronicles 6, Korah uh, is mentioned as one of the musicians that was appointed to lead the worship, the public worship in the tabernacle. Uh, The sons of Korah uh, were laid to help with temple worship, and they're mentioned in 1st Chronicles 9. They were also Uh, members of the choir, they led the singing in the worship services. And uh, we remember from last week's sermon in in 1 Chronicles 20, uh, the Korahites are listed among those that were sent out to lead uh, Israel into battle by King Jehoshaphat. They were the ones that sing, you know, blessed is the name of the Lord as they went into, into battle. So the author of Psalm 84 is a descendant of that Korah, one of the sons of Korah, And uh, for the purposes of of the sermon, we'll call him Korah Jr. Uh, He is homesick for the presence of God. Um, He expresses this homesickness in the language of a man who is in love. 
He writes, my soul longs. Uh, the NIV has, my soul yearns. Uh, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. I mean, who writes like this? Well, people with an appetite for God write like this. People who are homesick, who are, in fact, lovesick for the presence of God. And he is homesick for the courts of the Lord because he's hungry to experience the presence of God there. The one place he knows where he can experience God's presence in a tangible, if not physical way, is right there in the temple precincts. He yearns for the temple for the same reason that so many gathered at Ground Zero and then in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and then at the Pentagon yesterday to remember and to somehow make contact with, with those that were killed on that tragic day, those who died helping others. There's a, a reason why we construct memorials. We construct and we build memorials not only to remember the events that led up to that memorial, but somehow also to make contact with the people that are memorialized there. It's the same reason why we go to cemeteries. It's just a headstone, but we see the name. And we stand there in silence and we remember and we, we see that moment, that place as a, a point of contact. Well, in the same way that a, a memorial is uh, created to honor the, the dead, to remember their presence, to even perhaps sense their presence, the, the temple is built for the same reason, but it's built to celebrate and to worship and experience not the presence of the dead, but the presence and the activity of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is what Cora Jr. is homesick and lovesick for. He wants that kind of experience. He knows God is there, and he has this yearning, this appetite for God, which is, in fact, the title for the sermon, An Appetite for God, because an appetite for God draws us closer to him. It drives us to meet him. It, it, it compels us forward to worship him in his presence. And so as we look at the psalm, we'll, we'll break it down uh, as follows, that people with an appetite for God worship him with all their heart. And then they worship him in the company of others who worship him. And they pray for those in positions of authority. And then lastly, people with an appetite for God, they're humble, they're faithful, they're blessed. So people with an appetite for God worship him with all their heart. The psalm starts with this declaration of how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. The temple, he says, is lovely not because of its architecture, although it was a magnificent structure, but it's the fact that God dwells there, that it is the place of his residence. You know, a house is just a building. It's the people in the house that make it a home. It's the presence of those that we love in that place that make it a home. In the same way, the temple is just a building without the presence of God. But once the presence of God is there, then it becomes the home, the dwelling place of God, and its loveliness is derived from that. So the junior is extolling the fact that the loveliness of the temple is not in its architecture but in its dwelling place or being a dwelling place for the presence of God. In the same way that, you know, 360 is just a building. But it's when we gather together as, as persons beloved of God with a desire or yearning ourselves to worship God 
this room becomes a home. It becomes the dwelling place of God. As in the fact, even as God dwells in our hearts, he now dwells in our praise and he dwells in our gathering. That's what Korah is longing and yearning for. His yearning is so strong that he uses this romantic language. In fact, his yearning is so strong, he envies the birds, the swallows, the sparrows who get to nest in the nooks and cranny of the altars, making uh, room there to, to build their own families. And he, he speaks with such envy and such passion of a man in love. It reminds me um, of, a, of a scene in uh, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. In Act 2, Scene 2, Romeo spies uh, Juliet standing on her balcony, and he is instantly smitten. He is love-struck from the get-go. And he, uh, Shakespeare's words are, as uh, Juliet on that balcony sort of leans on her hand, Romeo is heard to say, See how she leans her cheek upon her hand? Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch her cheek. Right? Yeah, long before Shakespeare wrote those words, Cora Jr. says, See how the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Oh, that I were a swallow, that I could make my home near the altars of the Lord. Now, why is that important to him? Why is it so important to, to be near the altars of the Lord, to, to be near and in the presence of God? Well, the altars of the Lord, what do they represent? Well, it's, it's, they represent worship. They represent the place where he worships God, where he could make sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, either offering an animal or offering some grain in acknowledgement of God's greatness and his need for him. It's, it's where he could participate in receiving that forgiveness. He, where he could participate in the singing of songs of praise and, and adoration to God. It's where he can experience the fellowship with other believers who have come to worship God, where he could bathe his soul in the cleansing presence, smelling the incense, indeed even smelling the, the sacrifice and finding in that aroma something beautiful, something lovely, something glorious, because it speaks to him that that very tactile thing that he has done is in fact invoking the very presence of God in whose presence he has made that act of worship. This is why he can say, oh, that I were a swallow, that I were a sparrow, that I could nest and stay forever in the presence of God and worship him. That's why he says, blessed are those who are there worshiping you, because they get to experience that in a very definitive and descriptive way. The people with an appetite for God like this, they yearn to be near him. And they worship him with all their heart. They trust him. And they know, more than they trust him, they know that he is their refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And they have this appetite to worship God, not simply alone, not in isolation, but to do so in the company of others. And so those who have an appetite for God worship him in the company of others. Verses 5 through 7 after describing his own yearning for God, he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. They're very, you know, it, what's in their heart drives them to the, uh, the temple site. And they go through the Valley of Baca and so forth. Pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem. 
would often have to travel through dry and barren wilderness to get there. These were not safe places. They may have been highways, but they were susceptible to thieves and robbers and wild animals and things like that. So they faced constant danger en route. Not exactly the kind of danger you face on 208 or 4 or 17 or 46, but kind of close. Everybody's sort of moving and jockeying for position. Wise pilgrims, then, they traveled in groups of other pilgrims. We come separately in cars. They traveled in groups, in caravans. Not only did that ensure their safety, um, but it also offered them the opportunity to have fellowship. They would sing these psalms. And if you go through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, they would sing these psalms out loud to encourage one another. So they would worship when they got to Jerusalem, but they would worship on the way. We learn a couple of things from this. God did not intend for us to live alone. He did not intend for us to worship alone. He didn't create us to follow him alone. That we are created by God to live, worship, and fellowship as a community, as part of a community. He said it about Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's said of us as well. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be separated. So it's wonderful to see that we are now coming more and more to gather together in our CWG. And we are thankful for those who are watching over the internet. But it's, it's just such a blessing to see people gathered together in his presence to worship him. That we are created to do that. Now, our pilgrimage may not be as, as dangerous in comparison with juniors here, but it can be just as challenging, just as difficult, just as lonely, especially in this last year, which, although it's 2021, really still is 2020. I mean, this is just like the 20, almost the 24th month of 2020. It just goes on. And who knows when it will end? And I think that's why we need one another. That's why we need to worship together. Because at some point, like these pilgrims, we will all walk through a valley of Bacah. Now, what is that? What is the valley of Bacah? Well, in Hebrew, the word Bacah means weeping. And so it's, it's a place where, as these pilgrims would go through, it would be this, this almost maybe at the, at the midpoint, or at, the, at, at some point, you're, you're in this valley, and you just wonder, will I ever get through this to the other side? Will I ever get through this to worship God at the temple? It's dry and, and desolate wilderness that we're traveling through. But in order to get to the temple, in order to get to Jerusalem, in order to get to the place that represented the presence of God, you had to go through the Valley of Weeping. Years ago, uh, when I was walking through my own Valley uh, of Weeping, a, a friend tried his best to comfort me. And he said, you know, Mike, uh, no one goes through life without singing the blues. Well, that wasn't much comfort, but it's true. And at least my friend was there to walk with me through that valley. And that's the thing, isn't it, when you think about valleys? They are meant to be walked through, not lived in. In Psalm 23, 4, that famous psalm that David writes, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, 
Verse 4 of that psalm, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now why is that? Because David knows that valleys are meant to walk through, not live in. You'll pitch a tent in the valley. You walk through the valley for the same reason that the proverbial chicken crossed the road. Get to the other side. Because on the other side of that valley is where you will meet God. But even more than that, God is with you in the valley as you're walking through it. Because David says in the very next line, the reason I fear no evil is because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They both protect me and discipline me so I don't wander off the path while I'm going through the valley. Because when you're going through the valley of weeping, the temptation is either to turn back or choose your own direction. And so at the same time God protects you from whatever may try to assail you there, he also corrects you from, from going off track, from going off trail. And sometimes God leads us through the valley of weeping in order to strengthen our appetite to worship him. It's the way the economy of God works. We sometimes would like it differently. It's like the, the little boy who always wondered, why aren't there vitamins and minerals in ice cream? And God put them in broccoli instead. So I don't know, I don't make the rules, but that's how it is. But sometimes God leads us through the valley to, to strengthen our appetite for him. Also, to strengthen our resolve to find comfort in knowing that he is with us in that valley. In fact, we know from Jesus' own experience, he walked through that valley before we even got there. So he knows where the dangerous places are. He knows where the safe places are. Walk here. Put your foot here. Don't look there. Stay here. I will lead you. I've been through this valley. I know the right way through it. Trust me, follow me, listen to me, heed me. I will protect you, I will lead you, I will guide you, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. My Father has forsaken me on the cross so that I will not forsake you when you go through this valley and you have to carry your cross. You go through the valley of weeping, but not all valleys are in the wilderness, are they? Right? Some, some are an ongoing pandemic, chronic illness, a wayward child, or a wayward spouse. It could be a troubled marriage. It could be tension between parents and children. Some valleys are emotional. They're feelings of loneliness, grief that is more than just emotional but is palpable, anxiety, which is also palpable and real. In some valleys, if we're honest, they seem to go on forever. You know, the, the thing, if you're in a valley, you know, you can sort of see the mountains. They're there. But somehow, the closer you get to them, the farther they move away. You wonder, will I ever get through this valley? Because they test our faith. They test our resolve. They try our patience. Valleys will even stretch our endurance to the breaking point. And that's why we need one another walking through those valleys. To have a brother or sister come alongside and say, you're not alone. God is with you in this valley, and so am I. And though I cannot take from you 
the things that you are experiencing, and I cannot experience them in your place, I can tell you and I can remind you of someone who has experienced these very same things. And he cares for you more deeply than you can ever know at this moment of your greatest despair. So let's walk together through this. You find in that moment a bond is created because there's more than just safety in numbers. More than just strength there. There's help and there's comfort. There is encouragement that is gained by knowing we're not alone, that others are on this journey with us. They're upholding us, if not physically, but certainly spiritually in prayer. And so we trust God. We go from strength to strength because we trust Him to renew our strength as we follow Him. It's, it's, it's what Isaiah talks about at the, at the end of Isaiah 40, that marvelous passage, right? Those who wait upon the Lord renew their strength. And that word waiting isn't just a patient sitting still. It's a waiting that involves following Him. It's a waiting that involves doing what must be done every day to get up, go to work, or take care of the children, or take care of the house, or take care of business. Those things involve waiting, walking through the valley of Baca with someone. Two are better than one, says the preacher in Ecclesiastes 4. Why? Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Maybe you've had that experience where you have fallen and there has been no one to pick you up. And you know, you know how painful that is when there is no one there to hear, to weep with you, to pray for you, to pray with you. And so our responsibility, the, the thing that we envision here at Maranatha is that we, we don't leave anyone behind, that we gather one another up, if not physically, certainly in prayer, to just say, we are walking through whatever it is we're walking through, we're doing it together. Two are better than one, because the fact is, no one goes through life without singing the blues. But here's the good news. When we travel in the company of others, even the valleys, even those dry and barren places can become a place of blessing. That's what he says at the end of verse 6. They go through the valley, and what happens? They make it a, they make it a place of springs. They, the, the early rains cover it with pools. Something miraculous takes place when we worship God in the company of others. We have a positive impact upon the circumstances around us. The people with an appetite for God, as a result of that, in making a positive impact on the environment, one of the ways that we do that is by praying not only for one another, but praying for those in authority. And that's what verses 8 and 9 are all about. Two men have written a wonderful commentary on Psalm 84. Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant, they collaborated uh, it's in a New International Version application commentary in the Old Testament. Their, their summary of verses 6 and 7 is the perfect lead-in to verses 8 and 9. 
where they say God's strengthening enables God's people to make a positive impact on the difficult environment in which they live, wherever and whenever that environment may be. And so one way we do that is by praying for one another. Another way that we make a positive impact is by praying for our leaders. He says, oh God, uh, hear our prayer. Uh, Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield. It's a reference to the king. Look on the face of your anointed. We honor God when we pray for our leaders. And Junior prays for the king in particular because he knows that as goes the king, so goes the nation. When the king does right, God blesses the king. And he blesses the nation. Read 1st and 2nd Kings. Read 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and you can see that pattern. Good king, things go well. Bad king, things don't go well. This pattern repeats itself until you get to the end of 2nd Chronicles, and Israel is gone, and Judah is gone. So um, Korah, Jr. here, prays for the king. Uh, He blesses, uh, when the king does wrong, serious consequences follow. So we should pray for our leaders. Pray that they'll give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Pray they'll maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Pray that they will rescue the weak and the needy. That they will act responsibly with wisdom and integrity and honesty. Praying for our leaders reminds us particularly in this hypercharged environment in which we now live, where everything is political, everything is political, from where you get your coffee to what kind of car you drive, to what kind of clothing you wear. Everything is political. Everything. Or so it seems. So praying, praying reminds, certainly reminds me, and hopefully reminds you as well, that sal- salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not through government policy or political power or a politician's promises. We continue to adjust to life under a new president and a new administration. Let us pray for him. Let us pray for those in his administration. And remember that administrations come and administrations go. But the living God is the sovereign king who rules over all. I remember uh, learning a chorus when I first came to Christ. Uh, we used to sing at the church in Brooklyn, kings and kingdoms, right? Um, you know, may rise and come, but, but there's one name that abides over all, that, that's Jesus, right? Uh, kings, and, kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. That's how it was, and it was the name of Jesus. So pray for our leaders. That's part of why he wants to be in the temple, to, to be there. And then the, the, the psalm ends with this reminder that people with an appetite for God are humble, faithful, and blessed. Uh, look at that's in verses 10 through 12. And that famous line for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I have a friend uh, that if you ask him how he's doing, his answer is better than I deserve and grateful. That attitude uh, suits a junior to a T. He would rather serve as a doorkeeper in the temple, even though his responsibility was to lead worship. He would rather serve as a doorkeeper because even that would keep him in the presence of God. Even that would keep him involved in something active. Even that would enable him in this humble heart to worship God with all of his heart and in the company of others. 
Years ago, I, I can't remember, um, it was the testimony of a pastor, I cannot remember if it was in China or North Korea. Uh, he was sent to prison. He was arrested because he was a pastor. And uh, he was forced to clean the latrines that were used by the prison guards. And uh, you can imagine how dirty and filthy a job like that is. And because it was so dirty and filthy, he would be left alone. I mean, who wants to hang around with a guy who spends his entire day knee-deep in a latrine? And what he found out is that since the guards would leave him alone, he had all of this time. And he would use his time not to complain or be embittered toward the people who arrested him, but he would use his time to pray for them, to pray for his church that was now without their pastor and who knows what, how they were being treated. He would sing hymns and he would continue praying. At the top of his lungs, he would sing hymns. <laughs> And I thought to myself, if a guy can sing hymns to God and pray for his church while he's standing knee-deep in a latrine, then certainly I can praise God while sitting in traffic or sitting in the doctor's office or in the dentist's chair or waiting for the kids to come home from school or doing homework or paying my taxes or washing dishes, or doing laundry, or any other kind of a menial thing that is unpleasant to do. Because people with an appetite for God are humble and appreciate the fact that at least, even in the most menial thing, in the most demeaning thing, that becomes an act of worship. They are also faithful and blessed because the in that humility, we're told that the Lord God is a son and shield, that he bestows favor and honor. Now, obviously, in Junior's day, you, it was better to travel in the daytime. You didn't travel at night. You, know, you had this little lamp, not going to make a whole lot of light. So the description of God as son speaks of his grace, of his guidance, and his clarity. So as a son, God is the light that guides us through life. He bestows favor. How? By helping us see clearly. Helping us see the obstacles in front of us. Helping us see the, the, the sinfulness of our own heart and the greatness of his grace and mercy and forgiveness toward us. That he gives us wisdom, insight, and understanding as a son. I have a, another friend who would always say, you know, whenever I have a problem, the thing I pray for first is that God would give me clarity, that I could think clearly. Because when I can think clearly, I can act decisively. And God as a sun and shield provides us with that sense of clarity and decisiveness that we can act with, with faith and trust in him. But he's more than just a sun, he's also a shield. He's a protector. He gives us light and he gives us protection. And that description of God as a shield takes us to two places in the Old Testament that talk about God's protection clearly. Genesis 15.1, Abram is worried that he does not have an, a descendant, doesn't have an, a, a male heir. And God appears to him at night in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 1, knowing Abram's fear, knowing Abram's concern and what's going on in his heart, God speaks to him. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward is very great. I'm your boss and I'm your salary. What I have promised, I will deliver. And then when we get into the book of Exodus, 
We're told there that the Lord went before the children of Israel by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, protected them from the desert heat, and by night by a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day and night. And they also be protected from enemies as well. Cloud and fire. Protection. We trust in God to be our sun and shield, to be our light and protection. The result of this, the blessedness comes that no good thing does God withhold from us. It doesn't mean that we'll never encounter trouble. It doesn't mean that we'll never stub our toe or, or find difficulty. It means, well, it means what Paul writes in Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, that whatever comes into our lives comes at God's direction and is meant to conform us to the image and likeness of his son, is meant to strengthen us, is meant to help us. But it's also important that we walk uprightly. What does that mean? That's an old-fashioned word, uprightly. But to walk uprightly is to have integrity. What does that mean? A person with integrity is the same person in public as they are in private. So what, what you see is what you get, because they are the same when you see them face to face, and they are, same, they are the same when the door is closed, the lights are off, and nobody sees them except God. A person who is like that, says the Bible, has, is blameless. And blamelessness in the Bible is not perfection. The Bible is not asking us to be perfect because no one is perfect. No one can follow God perfectly, but we can follow him blamelessly. The Old Testament saints were blameless by virtue of the fact that when they sinned, what did they do? They sacrificed an animal. They confessed faith. David is blameless, even after he sins with Bathsheba, because he makes sacrifice. He acknowledges his sin before God. And so God withholds no good thing from one who is honest with himself or herself about where they stand with God. Blamelessness isn't being perfect, but it means always paying attention to where we stand before God. In New Testament terms, a blameless person practices what Jesus preaches. They behave in a manner that's consistent with their confession of faith. They confess their sins to God. They forgive those who sin against them. They pray for their enemies. They don't seek revenge. They give justice to the weak and the fatherless. They maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They rescue the weak and the needy. They are peacemakers. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Read the Beatitudes. That's a blameless person. God withholds no good thing from blameless people. He withholds no good thing from people who trust him as sun and shield. Now, Junior doesn't tell us what these good things are. I think that's on purpose, obviously, because it leaves to God to decide what those things are. It could be health. It could be wealth. It could be a loving family. It could be a good job. It could be a career. It could be a sound church that's healthy. It could also be just this ongoing sense of his presence, that you are always knowledgeable of walking in his presence, which is why the psalm ends with this benediction, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you've ever been homesick, you can relate to what Junior writes here in Psalm 84. People with an appetite for God, they draw closer to him, they yearn to be near him, 
They yearn to worship him with others who worship him. They yearn to be blameless. And to be blameless is to trust him to forgive you your sins and to become uh, enamored with him by walking more closely with him. Now, in the, New, in the Old Testament, obviously, in order to experience these things, where did you have to go? You had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go to the temple. You had to physically march yourself across the valley of Baca. In the New Testament, everything changes. Everything changes. Under the Old Covenant, you had to go to God. You had to travel to Jerusalem. You had to prepare and to make sure you had your sacrifice with you. But under the New Covenant, that changes. We don't go to God. He comes to us. I was just uh, telling Jill this morning, someone has posted a meme. Memes are interesting things, but this one was pretty good. This one said, uh, you didn't find Jesus. He found you. He wasn't lost. You were. See, in the New Testament, the way it works is we don't go looking for God. He comes looking for us. Jesus comes looking for us. The good shepherd goes and finds the lost sheep of his fold. He comes as the sacrifice. He comes as the temple. He is the one who makes his home in us. He is the one that understands that he is the son that is the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life. He is a shield because he offers us the, the protection of his blood by which our sins are forgiven and we become blameless and remain blameless. You know, that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Think about what that meant to your average Jew. Where is God's presence? The temple is gone. The ark is gone. Even in the restored, reconstructed temple, there's no ark. But Jesus is a temple who lives forever. And if he lives forever, that means if you put your trust and your hope in him as Savior, that faith, that salvation endures for as long as he endures, which is forever. So you have an appetite to worship God? Worship him with all your heart. You have an appetite to worship God, then worship him with others who also worship him. And then while you're doing that, pray for those whom God has placed in authority over you. And remind yourself to be humble and to be faithful, that you are blessed by these things. And that you are blameless. Because Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to journey through the Valley of Bacah to make wherever we go a place of springs and to be blessed. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the, there's a memorial just across the bridge that for many represents the Valley of Bacah. It is a place of weeping. It is more personal for some than others, and we have felt at times that grief in our own lives. But we know that as we have an appetite and a yearning to worship you, those dry places, those valleys, are places where we can experience the joy of knowing that you are with us, that you have forgiven us, 
and that you will be and are our home forever. Remind us of these things, Lord God. For we ask and pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen.